seated. Good morning. Turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14 this morning. We are going through this book uh, on Sunday mornings as a series, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Uh, and today we're starting into the chapter that begins the Passion narrative, where Christ is, is close to his death on the cross and the events leading up to it. We're going to be reading this morning in a few moments in Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. Have you ever had enthusiasm for something that is not shared by somebody else? <laughs> you ever watched a YouTube video that's really funny and you want to share it with somebody and, and you're, you want to see them laugh and respond and they just don't, they just stare at it? Like, what, why are you showing this to me? It's the worst when that happens, right? I'm, a, I'm an Ohio State fan, right? And, and not everyone shares that enthusiasm with me. <laughs> and sometimes I can express enthusiasm during a game which can be quite strange to the uninitiated. Outbursts and celebrations just seem weird, which is probably fair, to someone who doesn't care about football, right? Some, sometimes, and those, sometimes those people marry each other, right? <laughs> This applies to anything that you may be passionate about. It just doesn't make sense to someone who doesn't have that same passion. And, and part of your desire uh, with something that you're passionate about is to get that other person to see what's so great about it. You want them to catch that excitement, that enthusiasm. And it doesn't always work when it comes to things like sports or other hobbies or a funny YouTube video. But when it comes to the most important thing in this world, the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is actually your passionate response to its truth that proclaims to a sinful world that Christ is worth it. I believe one of the functions, the reasons why we should be passionate in our worship to God is so that those who don't know Christ will see our response and ask, why, why do they respond that way? What is it about Christ that evokes such a response of worship. And it's true, sometimes your love for Christ will be critiqued by those who couldn't care less. Your love for Christ can actually be a conduit through which others have a glimpse into the worth of Christ and his gospel and actually embrace it for themselves. Today, as we look at Mark chapter 14, we're going to see an act of worship. An act of worship that leads up to the death of Christ. And we're going to see Jesus' analysis, his response of this act of worship, and he's going to call it a beautiful thing. A beautiful thing. As we jump into Mark chapter 14, as I mentioned, this is the beginning of a passion narrative. The passion narrative. And throughout this chapter, you're going to see man's betrayal and failure contrasted to Jesus' control and authority over the situation. Men are scheming. Peter betrays him. His disciples desert him. But all throughout chapter 14 of Mark, Jesus remains undaunted in his mission. He came to die. And he is going to stay resolute in that message, in that mission. Our passage today, this morning, commences this all-important and critical period in Christ's life. And this passage actually also highlights the different responses to Jesus Christ. Look with me in Mark chapter 14. We'll be reading verse 1 through verse 11. After two days was the feast of the Passover. 
and of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by craft and put him to death. But they said, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar of the people. And being in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, he sat at meat, and there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious. And she broke the box and poured it on his head. And there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, why was this waste of ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and have been given to the poor. And they murmured against her. And Jesus said, let her alone. Why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me. For you have the poor with you always. And whensoever ye will, ye may do, do them good. But me ye do not have always. She hath done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body to, be buried, to the buried. Verily I say unto you, Wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. And Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went unto the chief priests to betray him unto them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought how he might conveniently betray him. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for sending your son to die for us on the cross. It is because of what he did for us that we are here this morning, worshiping you, praising your name, and hearing your word preached. And I pray that as we look into your word, your truth would be made clear and that we would apply it to our lives. We pray that our lives would be lives of worship toward you, that others may see it and respond. In your son's name we pray. Amen. As we jump into this passage, let's get a little understanding about the setting and the context for where this passage falls. We see in verse 1 that the setting is two days before the Passover in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. What are these important days in the Jewish calendar? Where the Feast of Unleavened Bread was seven days long and actually started with the Passover meal. And we see that the chief priests and the scribes are scheming two days before this Passover to arrest and kill Jesus, but they don't want to do it on the feast days. This would be a, there would be a lot of people in Jerusalem this time of year, so they had to be sneaky about it. And ironically, just as much as they wanted to avoid ki killing Jesus during the Passover, we find at the end of our passage that the offer of Judas to betray him prompts the religious leaders to rush ahead. And as a result, Jesus, during these feast days, as a Passover lamb, is slain for the sins of the world. And in this setting, they start to scheme. They start to plan. They want to betray Jesus. They want to kill Jesus. And if you look at our passage, actually our passage has these ideas at the beginning and at the end. And this is actually a common structure for Mark. We can call it a Mark sandwich. We saw it earlier, actually, with the fig tree. Do you remember the passage where he, he looks at the fig tree and curses it, and then he goes to the temple, and he clears the temple, and then after that, he goes back to the fig tree. And the point is, the, the, the things on the outside point to what's going on on the inside. There's the two slices of bread and the meat in the middle. Mark is doing this again. Mark likes to do this. And Mark intentionally bookends the main episode of our passage, which is the woman anointing Jesus, and he bookends that with two different descriptions of people going against 
Jesus. Verses 1 and 2, the chief priests and the scribes are scheming. And then at the end of our passage, 10 and 11, one of Jesus' closest friends is scheming. And in the middle, verses 3 through 9, we see an unnamed woman. The chief priests have status. They have recognition. Everyone knows them. Judas is one of the 12. But who's the highlight of the story? This unnamed woman that no one knows. And she expresses genuine and extravagant worship. We see the same account, actually, in Matthew chapter 26. And we see a very similar account in John chapter 12. In fact, there's a good chance, if you were to read John chapter 12, that, that John is describing the same event. And if so, this woman is actually Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. But Mark does not name her. It's as if he's intentionally keeping her anonymous, whether she's Mary or not, in order to make a point. He wants to focus not on her identity, but on her devotion. And so the center point of the story is the acts of this unnamed woman, and therefore it deserves our attention as well. God wants us to see not only what she did, but he wants us to see it in contrast to the actions of those closest to him. While the religious elite and the insiders are pursuing their own self-interest, this poor stranger with no credentials or resume finds her way to Jesus and expresses her worship. While those at dinner are critiquing and condemning her shameless act of worship, Jesus commends her and upholds her act of worship as an example, not just to those at the dinner, but to everyone everywhere where the gospel is proclaimed across the globe. This is a story that would go with the gospel. And so this is a passage about extravagant, beautiful worship. Jesus commends the woman in verse 6 by saying that she has done a good work for him. The word good, good means noble or beautiful. Some of your English versions say she has done a beautiful thing to me. And genuinely worshiping our Savior is indeed a beautiful thing to him. May we consider these truths for our own lives. What kind of worship does God consider beautiful? Perhaps we immediately think of a beautiful instrument or a choir or a moving solo. Beauty in worship isn't limited to a form or a presentation or a song. When someone gives their all to magnify Jesus and proclaim his name, even when others are opposing them and criticizing them, Jesus considers that to be beautiful worship. There are many things that we as Christians are called to do, but at the very top of the list is living a life of worship. Perhaps you're here today living in a life of self-interest, that you find yourself not at the middle of the story, but maybe on the outskirts of the story, with the priests and the scribes who are rejecting Jesus, or with Judas who's seeking to use Jesus for personal gain. Perhaps you find yourself with the crowd critiquing this woman, rebuking her for wasting her resources. Perhaps you just don't get why Jesus is so important or evokes such a response. May you see beautiful worship today. Or perhaps you identify more with the woman in the story, seeking to give all the glory and praise to Jesus for what he has done, giving your time, your energy, your resources to lifting him up, only to be judged and critiqued by those around you. 
find comfort in the words of Jesus who commends and honors the actions of this woman. His opinion is what matters. Or perhaps you don't even know what it means to worship God, to praise him and give him the glory he deserves. Learn from this woman and the words of Jesus so that you can know how to orchestrate your life to attribute the honor that Christ deserves. Let's look at, first of all, this morning, the opposition to beautiful worship. As I mentioned, this passage is a passage of contrast. We see the contrast in the structure itself. Genuine worship surrounded by betrayal and self-interest on either side. We see contrast in the critique of those at the dinner with the commendation of Jesus. Bringing beautiful worship to Jesus is not easy. Many people won't get it. Others will disapprove of it. We are surrounded by self-interest. Different people approach Jesus in different ways. Rather than giving him all the praise and glory and honor, some people might see Jesus as a threat or as an imposter, someone who works against their own self-interest. In fact, the, the priests and the scribes have been scheming for a while. Ever since Jesus had overturned the tables in the temple, they were seeking a way to destroy him. We read that in Mark chapter 11. Jesus was threatening their way of life. That's how some people see Jesus. Jesus, Judas, one of the twelve, one who had seen the miracles of Jesus and heard his teaching, gave him up for 30 pieces of silver. We're surrounded by self-interest. And if you direct your life to worship Christ, know that you might stand alone. Now, all around are people living for their own self-interest, but not only are we surrounded by self-interest, but we're faced with critique. In this culture, not only was this woman breaking this flask of ointment offensive, but just the woman interrupting the dinner would have been inappropriate. The disapproval of others while focusing on the costly perfume could have been set off by their general displeasure and discomfort of this woman simply stealing the show and interrupting things. But this woman takes the costly ointment, breaks it, and pours it over the head of Jesus. And when she does that, she is faced with harsh critique. What would bring someone to harshly critique this act of worship? Why would it be considered inappropriate? We see in verse 4 that they were indignant. Indignant. They disapproved. They looked down on this woman's actions. This word for indignation is actually the same word used to describe Jesus when he was indignant against his disciples when they would not let the little children come unto him, as we see in Mark chapter 10, verse 41. And so they, in the same way, thought that what she was doing was entirely inappropriate. What are you doing? If you look again in verse 4, what, what, what question do they ask? They ask, why was this wasted? Wasted. They disapproved because they thought it was an inappropriate and irresponsible use of her resources. They looked at her extravagant act of worship and they said, what a waste. But why do they see it as a waste? Well, verse 5 gives us the answer. For this ointment, they say, could have been sold for more than 300, the word is denarii. One denarii is a day's wage. And so what they're saying here is basically this flask of ointment is worth just about one whole year's worth of wages. 
This ointment could have been sold for that much and given to the poor. So why were they indignant? Why were they upset? Why did they disapprove? Because they thought that she could have used her resources to accomplish so much more good. She could have fed so many more people. She could have used, given that money to charity. I mean, if, I mean, couldn't you have at least poured out just some of it, get your point across, and sell the rest and give to the poor? And so they were indignant. They asked, why was it wasted? And then what did they do? Well, it says they murmured against her, but really, you know what that's saying? That was, they scolded her. This was not a murmuring amongst themselves. This was, vo- this was words directed to her, toward her. They directed their displeasure toward this woman. They scolded her. They made their displeasure known. So what was their critique? Their critique was that there are more noble and useful ways that you can spend your resources. You're not using your resources in the right way. This isn't worth it. Is their critique valid? Isn't caring for the poor an important thing? Yes. Yes, it is. Didn't Jesus command us to care for the poor? Absolutely. He commands that time and time again. And as we'll see in Jesus' response to these individuals, he's not discounting the importance of feeding the poor. We'll see that more in his response later. But I think the point that we see here in their critique is this, that those who critique a life of genuine worship fail to realize the significance of who Jesus is. They like Jesus. They appreciate what he says. But when they see an over-the-top extravagant act of worship, a self-giving, an emptying, a sacrifice of everything I am, they look at that and say, that's a bit much. You could have used that energy, that resources, for something much better. What is that saying? There's a deficiency in how much you value Christ. If they had truly realized who it was that was reclining there at the table, If they truly saw that this man reclining here is the Son of God who is about to take away the sins of the world, that he is our Messiah, that he is coming to save us from our sins, would they look at this outpouring of ointment and say, what a waste? Oh no, they would add to it. Jesus has called you to a life of worship, of giving you all your praise to him, of loving him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But you have to understand that genuine, beautiful worship to our Savior will often be opposed and critiqued. Your motives will be called into question. Your choices will be analyzed. But if you live your life for Christ, then the opinion you care about most is the opinion that Christ gives to your worship. And so let's see what Christ gives to this woman in his approval approval of his beautiful worship. You know, we don't know this woman's whole story, at least not according to Mark. We don't know what she has gone through. We don't know what sins she has committed, what pains and difficulties she has endured. All we know about her is her extravagant act of worship. And if we can imagine for a little bit what would need to be true about someone who goes to such great lengths to express this heart for Jesus. Because worship in its essence is the heart's response to God. Who he is, what he's done, what view of God must this woman have had to give such an extravagant act of worship? 
I think it's pretty easy for us to make some general conclusions about how she might have experienced Christ. She most likely experienced the goodness and love of Jesus. In fact, in a similar event, a different event but similar that we read about in Luke chapter 7, a woman anoints Jesus' feet in ointment, feet with, her, with ointment and her own hair and tears. And again, her actions are met with disapproval as those at the table know that this particular woman lives a life of, a life of sin. But Jesus reveals to them why she worshiped in such a way. And we read in Luke chapter 7, verse 47, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And what's his point there? In this particular other situation, this woman gives an extravagant act of worship. Why? Because she has been forgiven much. She has experienced the love and the goodness of Christ. She most likely understood the significance of who Jesus was. While others saw this act as a waste, this woman did not. To her, Jesus was worth the sacrifice. And in order for someone to be worth the sacrifice, you must have a clear understanding of who they are. And in response to the critique and disapproval of the others, Jesus comes to this woman's defense. And I love his response to these individuals. He stands up for her. And he says authoritatively in verse 6, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? Stop pestering her. Stop critiquing her. Why are you doing this? They were indignant toward her actions, but Jesus is indignant with them. Jesus acts as her defender. And then he goes on to explain exactly why her actions were more than just appropriate, but they were beautiful. He teaches us what he considers to be beautiful worship in our lives. This whole time I'm talking about beautiful worship, giving your life for Christ, living a life of worship. Well, what exactly is that? How do I know if I'm giving beautiful worship in my life that Christ approves of? Well, Jesus gives us the answer here. We read in verses 6 through 7 that beautiful worship elevates the worth of Christ. Verses 6 and 7, Jesus says, leave her alone. Why do, you why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whatever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. Jesus considers worship beautiful when it makes, makes much of him and his worth. In fact, the very word worship is worth-ship to ascribe worth to someone else. Do you know that's what we're doing when we are worshiping? That we're ascri ascribing worth to God? So many times, even in our acts of worship on a Sunday morning, we, we, try to th we think of worship in terms of what it is for me. How does it make me feel? Worship in its essence is ascribing worth and praise and glory to God to show other people Christ is worth it. The greater the worship, the greater the worth. And Mark goes to great length to describe how exp expensive this ointment was. Mark wants us to make sure we know how costly this is. It says that there's an alabaster, fla uh, alabaster flask of spikenard. I don't know what that is, but it's very costly, all right? The others at the dinner know how costly this is. They analyze it, they look at it, and they, they give an assessment. They, 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 they figure out how much it was probably worth, and they say, well, it's, it's worth more than 300 denarii, as we've already seen. This is one whole year's worth of wages. 
And most likely, since, this, since men in that day were the primary earners, it's unlikely that this unnamed woman paid for this flask herself. There's a good chance this is, might have been a family heirloom, adding even more costliness to it. It's very clear Mark wants us to grasp just how costly and expensive this perfume is. While the others consider this to be inappropriate, Jesus considers it entirely appropriate. He calls it a beautiful thing and then continues by saying, you always have the poor with you. You can give to them whenever you want and that's a good thing, but I won't always be with you. He's letting them know something even more important is at work right now with my presence. Helping the poor is a scriptural command and Jesus doesn't want to discount that, but he is elevating his mission and his purpose even above the need to feed the poor. While poverty is a problem, it is but a symptom of the disease, which is the curse of sin. And Jesus came to take on death itself, to offer freedom and forgiveness from sin, so that even in our poverty, we can have newness of life. In other words, this woman recognized, while perhaps not fully, the significance of Jesus being there in that moment. While the poor would always be there, Jesus would not. And so she took this opportunity to clearly communicate his great worth, the magnitude of his grace. It was very clear that her heart was not, look at me, but it was look at Jesus. What is a life of beautiful worship? It is a life that ascribes all the worth and all the praise to Christ, the one who came to save you. Make him look big. Draw attention to his grace. Does Christ look at your life and see a life that says, he must increase, but I must decrease? A life whose worship communicates his great worth. Jesus looks at that life and says, that is a beautiful thing. If my worship, whether in song or acts of service, says, look at me, then that's not worship. Christ says, look at Christ. He is worthy. Since Christ is supreme above all, I should make my worship of Christ the most important thing of my life. Even acts of service toward others should not supersede my devotion to Christ. Beautiful worship elevates the worth of Christ, but secondly, beautiful worship reflects the sacrifice of Christ. Look with me in verse 8. Jesus says, She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. What is Jesus doing here? Well, Jesus is tying the woman's actions to what is about to happen. He knew he was about to die and be buried, and he states that she was anointing him for burial. Now, most likely, this woman didn't grasp that that's what she was doing. I don't know if she knew that. She was simply worshiping. But in doing so, she was preparing Jesus for what was ahead. She was pointing to the cross and the sacrifice of Christ. And Jesus makes the point that she has done everything she could. What's he saying there? Well, this woman has held nothing back. She's given it all. What did she do with the ointment when she brought it in? She didn't just pour it out. What did she do? She, she broke it. She broke the entire thing and emptied it out. She left nothing back. She gave it her all, just as Christ was about to give his all 
on the Christ. This is reminiscent of Jesus' words about the poor widow in Mark chapter 12, who gave the two pennies at the, at the offering. It was all she had, and Jesus looked at that offering as worth more. She gave it all. And in the same way, this woman gave it all. She broke it and poured it out. And by doing that, she pointed to the cross. The totality of her worship, the sacrifice of her worship foreshadowed the sacrifice of Christ, the Lamb of God, who is about to take away the sins of the world. So beautiful worship reflects the sacrifice of Christ. How? How does beautiful worship reflect the sacrifice of Christ? I believe by being a sacrifice. And this is what we read in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, Paul says that we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Beautiful worship points to the sacrifice of Christ. Our life, a beautiful life of worship, is a life of sacrifice. And again, what a stark contrast to the exploitative and underhanded and selfish dealings of those around her, the chief priests, the scribes, and Judas. But this woman, this woman came and sacrificed all she had. And little did she know her sacrifice would point to the greatest sacrifice known to man. What are you willing to sacrifice for Christ? Do you see sacrifice as an essential element of your life of worship. So oftentimes I think our worship is strictly convenience. Worship is convenient. When, it, when it's convenient, I worship. But our worship is meant to point toward what Christ did. That through our sacrifice, the sacrifice of, of Christ is clearly seen. Does your worship reflect the self-emptying and the self-sacrificing love of Christ? Do you give of yourself of your time, of your resources, because Jesus gave everything for you. Beautiful worship reflects the sacrifice of Christ. And then thirdly, beautiful worship proclaims the gospel of Christ. In verse 9, Jesus drives it home, and again, he begins with these, this very important phrase, truly, I say to you. Whenever you see Jesus say, truly, I say to you, he's saying, stop, listen, pay attention, get this. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in all the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. He's saying this gospel that I am preaching is going to span the globe. And when it does, the actions of this woman will be told in her memory. Again, when we look at the contrast, the, 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 chiefs, the chief priests and the scribes, they were looking for worth. They were looking to have their names written in stone, to stamp down the competition. Yet their scheming did not last. Judas sought to betray him. His scheming did not last. But the selfless act of worship from this unnamed woman 
ended up being a memorial for wherever the gospel is preached. And how do we know that that promise comes true? We're reading about it right now. And her act of worship was inscripturated for all who hear the gospel to hear and learn from. As we proclaim the worth of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ in our worship, what are we doing? We are proclaiming the gospel of Christ. It is the effect and power of worship that makes it beautiful. The effect of feeding the poor spreads Christ's love in a tangible, yet often temporal way to those who are blessed by it. But a love of beautiful worship, one that exalts the worth and sacrifice of Christ, can be a vehicle by which the gospel can be spread to countless people. It was the worship of this unnamed woman that endured. And your worship of Christ can be a display of his gospel to a lost and dying world. When someone else looks at your life and sees, will they see someone who sees Christ as worth the greatest sacrifice, worth extravagant praise, worth the total devotion? If they see that, what might they do? They might stop and ask, what is it about Jesus to create such a profound response? Even though you might be surrounded by critique and self-interest, there might be one who sees your life elevating his worth, elevating his sacrifice, and ask, what is it about this gospel? 1 Peter 3.15 says that we are to be always prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. And I always say, in order for someone to ask for the reason for the hope that is in you, what do they have to see? Your hope. In other words, it has to be obvious enough for them to say, hey, what, what is it about that? Your worship is to be a proclamation of, a go- of the gospel, a life that cries out, no matter the opposition or the critique, Jesus is worth everything. I give him everything. And as others see this heart of worship in you, they stop and consider, what did Jesus do in their hearts to create such a response? Perhaps we should stop and ask the question, has Jesus actually done that in your heart? Maybe you see this act of worship and you're asking yourself, is Jesus really all the- worth all of that? And if you're asking that question, I actually ask you to stick with us throughout the next few sermons. Come back in the weeks to come, because we're going to see exactly what Jesus did, what he came to accomplish, because he came to earth to accomplish something for you. And all your sin, all your guilt, all your shame, he came to defeat and destroy, and he came to offer you new life, to give you the opportunity to be born again, and to walk in newness of life. And if you don't know the goodness of Jesus, then when you cross paths with someone who is giving their whole life and and giving of of themselves and sacrificing for Christ, you might look at that as this kind of a waste, worthy of your critique. But if you only see what Jesus has done for you, what he offers to do for you, such worship becomes a beautiful Thing. And in fact, it becomes the very least that you can do. When we grasp who Jesus is, our worship of him becomes a beautiful thing that proclaims his worth, 
proclaims his sacrifice, and as a result, proclaims his gospel to the self-seeking world all around us. Will your life be a life of worship, a life that responds to what Christ has done for you? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this testimony of this unnamed woman who shows us what worship is. Lord, giving you all the praise and the glory is often an unpopular thing. It is often looked down on, critiqued. Lord, I pray that our life of worship would be one that you would look on and consider beautiful as we respond to what you've done for us by proclaiming your worth, proclaiming your sacrifice, and proclaiming your gospel. May that be our testimony, even as we go throughout this week, that we wouldn't see worship as simply an event on a Sunday morning, but a life that we are to live around those who don't know you.